Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. All right. Welcome back to Energy and Efficiency with Emily. Today we have our resident expert, Mike Maines, on, and we are going to recap our recent discussion from the BS and Beer Forum on weather-resistive barriers. Um, and there was a lot of great information that came up. I think my favorite part was, well, if I'm walking into the lumber yard, what should I ask for for an exterior weather barrier? And the answer is, it depends. So... Um, thanks for being back on, Mike. Let's talk a little bit about why you need a WRB, and then maybe if we have time, get a little bit more into some specifics and different ones that we've used in different systems. Yeah, thanks for having me on again, Emily. It's always fun to talk building science with you. Um, yeah, WRBs, so weather-resistive barrier, water-resistive barrier, water-resistant barrier, whatever, um, what, however you want to abbreviate it. Um, water control layer is a new term that somebody suggested. Um, it's one of the four critical control layers, really, you know, when you have a house, there are all the finishes and that matters. But in terms of, of performance, there are the four critical control layers. You need to keep the rain out, then you need to control air movement, then you need to control vapor movement, and then finally you need to control thermal movement. And so the WRB is that first line of defense um, protecting the structure from weather. Um, most people think that that's the job of the cladding. Cladding is the surface skin. So the roofing, like roof shingles or metal roofing or on the walls, it might be vinyl siding or it might be clapboards or wood shingles, you know, depending on what, or, or, or hardy boards. Um, those are claddings and um, they're not, well, roofing is generally waterproof, but on um, wall cladding with all the penetrations generally is not fully waterproof. So in a storm, things can leak. Um, and get into your wall and cause problems over time. So uh, a WRB, um, a more generic term is house wrap, um, is, a, is a second line of defense, but it's, it's, it has to be absolutely watertight or should be absolutely watertight um, in order to protect your structure. I think that you you missed a statement there, though, is you know, if you've lived in Maine, and I don't know if this is like this in other parts of New England, but the WRB seems to be the exterior cladding in some locations. <laughs> that That is true, and it goes back to, um, as as a kid, we had na na neighbors with, 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 the, with the tar paper shack. They just had, you know, 30-pound asphalt felt on the exterior, um, and that, you know, um, tar, tar paper or asphalt paper, asphalt felt all roughly the same thing um th th that actually is a decent in terms of a lot of the performance things we're looking for it's actually pretty decent it varies in permeance it keeps keeps liquid water out to a degree it varies in permeance so if if the assembly gets wet then that it opens up and allows things to dry it's easy to work with it's base you know it's a in the old days it was cotton based now it's a card you know recycled cardboard um so th its biggest downsides really are it's it's a basically impossible to make it airtight, which doesn't always matter with a WRB, um, uh, but it's also just not very durable, and that, that is a problem. So products like uh, Tyvek and Typar were ones that came around when I was um, young, and everybody used those for a long time. Um, it's, uh, uh, 
a reasonably, they're, they're both reasonably heavy duty uh, spun bonded polyolefin fibers. So basically a plastic, a, a plastic uh, mat that um, has tiny little pores in it that lets, lets, lets water vapor come and go, but it keeps out most liquid water. And they're relatively airtight until they start tearing the staples or nails that hold it together and then they're no longer airtight. Yeah, that goes back to, you know, how, how quickly you get your cladding up over it and whether or not you get a couple of windy days. Um, but the other thing, when I was talking with Ken a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, he was talking about how um, they break down in UV light too. Uh, and that's something you kind of don't don't think about. Um, you know, you think about the, the weather aspects against them and the wind and ripping it off. But, um, you know, how long is the length of time that you have to, to put cladding over top of your WRB before it starts breaking down in the UV light? Um, and they're all, I think, a little bit different depending on what they are. And the fact that it will continue to break down even after you cover it if you left it exposed for too long. So that was kind of an interesting thing that I probably knew, but hadn't really thought of. Yeah. Or, I mean, well, and, and, and the other one is uh, back in the 80s, uh, when, when Tyvek first came on the market, they found that uh, if you nail cedar shingles or cedar clapboards directly to it, then the uh, tannins, which are like the um, sort of like the acids in the, in the wood, will actually degrade the plastic and render it no longer waterproof. Um, they supposedly fixed the issue, but it's, it, it's, it's funny. It's, it's, it's funny. It's now persisted for almost 40 years that, that that's, that's something that most people in the field know. They haven't <laughs> learned a lot of other things, but, but they've, they've learned that uh, Tyvek and Taipar are not so good under cedar. Taipar is actually supposed to be okay, but just that first generation of decent WRBs was, was good for the time, but we have some higher performance products now that, that are better in most ways. Um, Right. And I think that our, we're in the high performance world. Um, a lot of us are moving to rain screens, which uh, in theory give our WRB a little bit of extra ability to work depending on the wall system you have and whether your water vapor is coming from the inside or the outside. Or, um, you know, I saw one house where they put ice and water shield on, mm -hmm. on the whole house. Um, that was kind of an interesting mm -hmm. idea. Uh, I didn't follow through to find out what was going on on the inside, whether it had a double vapor barrier or it could dry to the inside, but it, it certainly wasn't dry right. to the outside. Yeah. yeah, no, I um, I know of one, one house on the coast of Maine that they did that, um, but then they put something like eight or 12 inches of polyiso foam on the outside of that. So the dew point is, is very, very safe. So, so it wouldn't hurt anything, but there's kind of a, um, there's a cellulose house that made it into Green Building Advisor um, and maybe find home building maybe six or eight years ago that it's a cellulose house that's fully wrapped with ice and water shield with the idea that it's sort of like what we we talk about that if uh, if there are no air leaks you're not getting a whole lot of water movement or, or water vapor movement through the wall but you are still getting some so they, they have those data logged and supposedly it's okay but to me that's a very risky um, situation i I'm, I'm much more comfortable um in in any sort of cold cold or mixed climate allowing the wall at minimum to dry to the outside unless you have a really thick layer of exterior insulation um and so most most house wraps you know people think they trap water um they they really 
essentially don't. Um, most of them are pretty vapor open anywhere from 10 perms to uh, there are some high, some super high performance ones that are like 200 perms, but a lot of them are like in the 30 to 40 perm range. So quite vapor open. Um, a lot of the high quality ones are, are, are quite watertight. You know, they, um, they measure water tightness and, and how many inches of water column can they withstand. And like I know uh, Proclima's, Proclima uh, Mento, which is one of my favorites, can uh, withstand a 30 to 40 foot column of water without leaking for like 24 hours. So I mean, really quite watertight um, and, and, and quite vapor open. And when you say vapor open, I know this was one of the things that came up because it's something that um, doesn't seem to be known. Is it vapor open in one direction or in both directions? Um, um, so, so I believe, I, I don't know of any WRBs that have variable permeance. You know, we use variable permeance membranes on the interior because it's more, there's a more, more things going on and sometimes and it's nice to have that added uh, insurance on the exterior. As far as I know, they're all, it's, it's it's the same perm rating in either direction, regardless of um, of, uh, of of humidity level, with the exception of tar paper or felt paper that does vary in permeance. Um, but I, I don't know I don't know of any variable permeance exterior membranes. But it's um, one thing we also talk, talked about about at the meeting is uh, John Straub, who's a building science researcher at the University of Waterloo. Um, he has a rule of thumb that the exterior in a cold climate or mixed climate or you know, in, in any heating dominated climate, your exterior, the exterior of your wall assembly should be five times more vapor open than the interior. So whatever you have for an interior perm rating, your exterior should be five times more open than that. Um, he's also said that there's a, there's a mechanism called solar vapor drive. So if you have a cladding, uh, 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 so again, clapboard shingles, whatever your cladding is, if it's, or even bricks, if it's the type of cladding that can absorb water, it's called a reservoir cladding. And um, even even in cold weather, when vapor drive is generally from interior to exterior, if if a reservoir cladding is saturated and gets hit with direct sunlight, the energy from that sun will actually push the water back into the house. And so sometimes you don't want a super vapor open super vapor open membrane because you don't want that moisture getting pushed back into the wall. Um, now, if you have a nice robust rain screen gap that's open at least at the bottom, ideally open at the top and bottom, that's sort of a, um, that's sort of like an escape valve. So you can sort of rest easy because moisture would rather go up to open air than back into the wall, but it's just something else. You know, one, one, one of many things to think about when you're choosing a WRB. Yeah, and I know we're talking about WRBs today, but this actually came up when we were talking about rain screens on one of our projects, and maybe we can talk about it on another podcast, is when you have that rain screen and you've got some kind of cladding that is water absorptive and, you know, you get a lot of moisture in your um, in your rain screen and it goes up, how do you keep it from going in your soffit venting? Right, that's that's an issue. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, that's a whole different topic. That is a different, maybe we'll do one on rain screens where we talk about, you know, open venting, top and bottom, et cetera, soft events um, on the coast. I'm personally not a fan of soft events anyway. Um, but, you know, that's just another um, 
added level of detail where, you know, you don't have that in some situations. Now you've added a rain screen, which improves the WRB and the siding and the lasting of the siding. But now you have a potential to push moisture somewhere where it wasn't going previously. So right. it's kind of interesting that yeah, we always describe house as a system. And when you change one part of the system, some other part of the system is probably going to change too. So um, when I was talking on the phone with one of my uh, consulting clients today, they're like, this is really complicated. I'm like, I'm, I'm glad that you, <laughs> they, that you appreciate the fact that building isn't a straightforward answer. Yeah, um, no, exactly. So, and and there, there are a bunch of, I mean, so, so there's a whole, di whole, variety of ways WRBs can be made. Um, the, the, the higher performance ones are generally a monolithic membrane. Um, uh, so there's, there's, it's actually at the chemical level that the, 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 the permeance per, per, is, is, is created versus something like Tyvek or Typar, where it's really sort of these uh, microscopic but permanent holes. And then the cheapest WRBs, so if you walk into your into your your lumber yard and ask for WRB, they're probably going to give you their cheapest store brand um, plastic roll with a bunch of little holes poked in it. And those are those are you know if you have a really thick rain screen and big overhangs, they're maybe they're okay, but they're they're nowhere near the class of material that the high performance ones are like uh, Proclaim and Sega. Then so another thing that WRBs can do is provide air tightness. You know, there's there are various places within your wall assembly you can choose to pick it to, to have an airtight layer, and so um, better quality WRBs can also be a good air barrier, um, if not a primary air barrier, at least a secondary air barrier. But but a lot of times we're combining WRB with a primary air barrier or airtight layer. And as a contractor, you can probably speak a little bit more about that than, than I can as the architect. But, you know, my understanding, especially for renovation projects, is it's often the easiest place to do the air barrier. But um, I think because most people understand the way a WRB works, it's easier to kind of get over the gap of building an airtight layer by, by combining those two things. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be easier for... Um, for builders to to meet the new performance standards uh, in general by um, meeting air tightness by using your WRB as your air tightness layer and then having instead of having a secondary layer that is your air tightness layer on the inside which is somewhat complicated to figure out how to do or connect or attach um, it's pretty easy to understand the WRB as the airtight layer because you're understanding as a builder you know even if you've been building for 30 years is um you know keep the water out and so right. if you if you're also combining that as your air layer then it's pretty easy to kind of make that jump into air tightness yeah yeah exactly no it's it's uh yeah i mean i mean most most sheet goods are pretty airtight already and so if you're um uh and and there's it's it's a durable place within the assembly in a relatively simple place you're not full of switches and trim and all the things you have on the interior and and, and it's a pretty pretty easy place to make make all those all those connections what one other combination material would be um uh zip you know hubert company came out with zip sheathing like 15 years ago which is it's a high quality osb um 
which is you know uh, 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 wood flakes glued together. The, the higher quality ones are glued together with polyurethane, um, and then the, the zip has a uh, brown or green coating that's a phenolic uh, phenolic paper coating. So so it's it, it's the same thing that plastic laminate countertops are made of. Um, uh, the the core of plastic laminate countertops is basically layers of the same stuff they're putting on the face of the zip sheathing, and it's a it's it's a vapor open material, but it, and, and and watertight. It's not as I don't think it's as durable a system as some others, but it's very simple. And so in the last five years, it's really taken off I think in popularity. And so you put up your structural sheathing, and you tape your seams and roll the tape with their with their proprietary um, acrylic tape or use their liquid flash um, then you have your structural sheathing and your airtight and an airtight layer and a wrb all in one shot so on one hand you don't have the redundancies there's something to be said for having a separate material for each layer each of the critical layers because then you have some built-in redundancies if you're using zip you don't have redundancies but it's that's an easy and pretty affordable and most crews now are familiar with the basics they still tend to miss some of the important fine points, but at least they've the basics pretty well nailed down. And while we're talking about zip sheathing, um, what about zip R? Because by adding that layer of rigid insulation to the inside of that, you you must change the permeance of the the system. So then you do sort of have a um, an exterior vapor barrier, if you yeah. will. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so to 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 back up for just a second first. So uh, zip, not zip R, just, just, just regular zip, the, the uh, OSB core um, has a permeance ratings. It's, you know, somewhere around one perm um, and it opens up as, as it gets wet. So it's, it's a little bit of a variable permeance membrane in itself. The OSB is far more vapor tight than the coating. And so the coating is not slowing down any drying whatsoever. It's the OSB itself slowing down drying. Um, then you move to um, move to the zip R, which is the z which is the same zip um, with uh, polyisocyanate rigid foam adhered to one side, and you know polyiso is the, is essentially the same thing as closed cell spray foam. They just use a different blowing agent, but, the, but it's, it's the same resin, um, and so it's it's pretty vapor closed. It's not totally vapor closed, um, and I'm not um, there's a there's a facing on the inside, and actually I have not. Um, on my to-do list just to find out what um, they don't publish a perm rating for that coating, but I want to find out what 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 is is there perm rating uh, on that coating? But but essentially, once you add the foam, you're making the structural sheathing. You know, it's good because you're keeping the framing relatively warm, but it's basically impermeable. You know, so just as a very low perm rating. So you're basically creating a wrong side vapor barrier. If the insulation is um, thick enough or if, if the ratio of that impermeable insulation to the rest of the wall assembly is high enough, then you'll be safe from moisture accumulation. But in general, I'm, I'm very leery of zip R in our climate because it, it's, uh, most people are using it in such a way that, that it's uh, putting the wall at risk of moisture accumulation. Um, walls tend to be resilient. So us nerds geeking out on the fine points may not Present, you know, reflect an actual problem in real life, but you know, basic modeling says it could be a problem. Um, a lot of people are concerned about the structural integrity of Zipar. I'm not concerned about that at all. 
because they've, they've gone through some pretty rigorous testing. And, and then on the exterior, in terms of WRBs on the exterior, it's the same. Um, you know, the sheets are a little harder to get flush to each other because there's some compressibility there, but um, you just have to be careful when you're rolling out the zip tape that you roll each side independently uh, to, to get good adhesion. If you don't roll the zip tape, then you don't get good adhesion. Yeah, I think that's been the, the biggest thing that I've seen um, on projects with zip is that they don't always take the time to to properly roll the, the seams that they've they've taped together. And if we've learned anything, tape does not actually stick unless you stick it onto something. Yeah. Well, and, and, and with the acrylic adhesives, um, they can sort of dial the uh, properties so like 3M, all weather flashing tape is very similar but it doesn't need to be rolled to the same, same level. It's basically it's stickier tape. And so just, just spread, 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 spreading it out with, with, your, with your hand is enough, whereas the zip tape is a little bit thicker. Um, and if you don't roll it, then you're not activating. Um, essentially, think, think of the acrylic adhesive as little tiny beads of glue, and you have to pop those beads in order for the glue to happen. I'm not sure if that's chemically quite what happens, but it's, 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 it's a good way to understand yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And, and then you also have to wait with, zip, with, with acrylic is also a time delay. So you have to wait three days. You have to wait, wait 72 hours to get full, full adhesion. So like I've, 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 I've heard of a couple of cases where people have zip taped roofs, rolled them, done everything properly. And then like it rains that night, and the panels leak because even though you've applied the tape and rolled it, it's not actually watertight for up to 72 hours. Uh, uh, depend, depending on the weather. So if you're applying it in low temperature, you have to be careful. So we talked about zip system and that's a WRB in itself um, and, and zip R. So while we're talking about zip R and talking about using uh, polyiso, um, what happens or what kind of WRB, since we're talking technical stuff now, <laughs> um, what kind of WRB is necessary? A lot of people to improve existing homes are doing exterior insulation. So whether that's wood fiber or polyiso. So if we're putting polyiso on the outside of the house and, you know, say you only have a two by four wall, which is why you're putting polyiso on the outside. Um, and again, we're back to that whole vapor barrier. Uh, it kind of in the wrong in the wrong side for this climate. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of WRB is necessary then? Do you want to attempt to use one that has less vapor permeance or can taped the uh, exterior polyiso be the WRB? The, um, uh, it depends. <laughs> uh, it depends, that's my favorite <laughs> answer. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's uh, any wall assembly is, is safer with, um, with a vapor open assembly. And so when we're talking about exterior insulation, vapor open usually means either mineral wool uh, sheets or, or wood fiber sheets, rigid uh, wood fiber. Those, because they're vapor open, you can basically use those in any thickness and be okay. But um, mineral wool is not a WRB in itself. So you have to use a separate WRB with, um, it can go over or below the mineral wool. It doesn't really matter. So it would depend on your other connection details. Um, I, I usually find it easiest to keep the WRB at the sheet, sheathing level. So I, I, would, I would put a WRB on the existing wall and then insulate on the outside of that strap and then add your cladding. Um, with wood fiber, it's a little bit different because um, generally the wood fiber 
the uh, rigid wood fiber um, we'd be using for exterior insulation has enough paraffin in it that makes it um, water waterproof enough to qualify as a WRB um, on its own and as a tongue and groove design. So it's supposed it's intended to, to be its own WRB, but with um, wind-driven rain and pressure differentials, it's it's still safer to add something else as a WRB. It doesn't necessarily have to be a uh, super high-tech one in that case. You know, pretty much anything would probably work if you're using it in conjunction with uh, exterior insulation. Um, when you move to polyiso um, or, or other rigid foams on the exterior, they can be their own WRB. We just did a renovation of a house built in the 80s where they have exterior polyiso, and then on the outside of that, they had I forget if it was Ty, Tyvek or Typar, um, but the order of operations trying to flash in windows and things was a little bit tricky. So I, I, after seeing that, I, I, I'm, it reassured me that uh, my typical approach of keeping the WRB at the sheathing level made more sense. In theory, you could tape the polyiso and have that be the WRB itself because it is you know watertight as long as it's not punctured. Um, the problem is it usually gets the, the skin usually gets punctured, uh, the panels shrink a little bit over time, and you don't know if the next person coming along to renovate would necessarily understand that the surface of the foam is, is a WRB. It's probably fine, but I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable when there's exterior insulation treating that as stuff that's happening outside the WRB. You and I are both big proponents of double stud walls, so we've done quite a lot of those. Um, I typically do a fully adhered membrane that's vapor open. Um, you can do staple up WRB uh, and tape seams where you have strapping and things like that. Um, but there were some questions I think that came up um, during our discussion on WRBs about you know which direction to go. And we talked a little bit about you know if you're if you're doing something where you're putting a lot of holes in it, it might make sense to do a fully adhered. WRB. Um, if you're if you're not doing that type of installation, it might be cheaper, more cost effective to do a staple up and and some tape in strategic locations. Yeah, it it I I think it really depends. I mean, because the self-adhered ones do cost more. Um, I, I have not been using them except when we're doing a renovation that has board sheathing, where I think the self-adhered membrane really shines. Um, we did use the fully self-adhered on, on one um, down in Scarborough just as a belt and suspenders and another pair of suspenders uh, 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 designed just to, to be absolutely rock solid. Um, with the self-adhered membranes, the adhesive, in the case of the, the uh, first big one on the market was Henry Blue Skin. Um, it's a good, good quality, you know, fairly tough, not super tough, but fairly tough. Um, vapor open, uh, watertight, and it has a butyl adhesive. Um, uh, but then the European ones, uh, like Sega and Proclima, and uh, a couple others, um, you use an acrylic adhesive. So the, the, the butyl, my guess is the butyl probably self-seals a little bit better just because it's, it's so rubbery and the acrylic adhesive is so thin, but I don't really have any scientific testing to, to back that up. In general, I think it's best to just, if there's a hole in your WRB, if you're not going for absolute super, you know, passive house or, or better uh, levels, the occasional nail hole, as long as the nail stays in place, I don't think it's going to hurt anything as long as the rate of drying exceeds the rate of wetting. It shouldn't really matter. Um, but if you want, if you want 
if you're type A personnel and you want the best, then then yeah, I mean, ha having a self-adhered membrane is good and having a nice thick rain screen and then using short fasteners or using strapping as, as your attachment point, just so, so you're preserving that WRB is a watertight surface. Um, also on uh, our list of things was transitions um, tend to be the, the weak point in, in the WRB. Um, in high performance buildings, we try to do uh, as few bumps and jogs and all of those things, but transitions probably more meaning windows and door locations um, and how to, how to flash to your WRB and is it different with different types of WRBs uh, and certainly is different with the location of the windows. Um, that was something that kind of came up in the discussion was, you know, is your window at the surface of your exterior insulation? Is it uh, at the inside surface? Is it at the exterior surfaces? Is it uh, in the passive house ideal location at the center of your uh, insulation surface, which um, is probably the most difficult place to locate it, but uh, is the highest in performance if you're attempting to get to, to passive house. And then how do you transition from your WRB to your flashing details? Yeah, yeah, those those are all, all, all important points. I mean, I mean, so with the four critical control layers, you know, with walls and roofs, we have multiple opportunities to create those those different control layers. With the window or door, the 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 window or door is is serving all of those functions. So yeah, it's really important to tie in your water control or weather control layer with the uh, with the outside face of the window, with the outside face of the door. Because most of my projects tend to be tight budget. I'm always balancing like the ultimate performance versus what can we actually get done. So I, you know, most American builders are, are very familiar with flanged windows as opposed to the European flangeless windows that have their advantages. But when you're doing a flanged window, it's pretty, every builder knows how to slap it onto the sheathing. And so since I put my WRB at the sheathing, it's pretty easy to tie in. It's just like any house. And then you're adding, adding your high performance details outside of that. Um, transitioning the air barrier to the interior of the, of the windows be being one trick, but we're not talking about air barriers as much as uh, the WRBs today. Um, that said, you can um, using a using a buck of some sort. So, with like a double stud wall, a buck might be a three quarter inch plywood or OSB that wraps the opening. Um, if you're doing exterior foam, um, you might use a Dudley box, which is like a buck with you know sort of faces put on it, or you might use a thermal buck, which is a manufactured um, foam product that basically gives you an insulating spacer all the way around your opening. So they're, they're different bucks, but the idea of a buck is to uh, help you with that transition um, uh, to, to, to help, help you bring all your control layers together where they need to be. Um, one, one thing that just, just ha happened today is I got an, a, a message from Benjamin Obdike, um, one of the, um, their company who has a bunch of uh, bunch of WRB related products. They're, they're most famous for their uh, uh, Slick, Slicker Classic, used to be Home Slicker, which is a, uh, um, which is another spun bonded um, polyolefin product, but it looks kind of like a Brillo pad that keeps, helps you keep your cladding off the wall. So it's basically a small rain screen. And then uh, a few years ago, they came out with uh, HydroGap, which is basically a WRB with a bunch of little plastic nubbins. So it's called a drain screen. So it's not a robust rain screen, but it provides a it provides about a sixteenth of an inch drainage layer, and they are um, 
they're sending me a sample of that product that they're now making self-adhered. So it, 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 it's it's in the market, but I think that could it could it could be useful in some situations. The big advantage of the self-adhered is you don't have to come around separately with tape. You know, you see a lot of houses go up with Tyvek flapping in the wind. You know, self-adhered. There's no flapping because everything is fully adhered. And I think that brings up a good point is, uh, I think it was two weeks ago on the podcast, I had Darius, who's a, who's a builder that I know in the Brunswick area, had him on to talk about he's building a, a high-performance ADU um, for his mom. And so, of course, um, breaking into this high-performance world, he said, I'm going to try everything in my front yard. And so, um, but but the one thing that, you know, kind of stuck out was, you know, people drive by and like one day he's going around and he's putting up the WRB, then he's going around and he's taping it, and then he's going around and putting up the exterior insulation, then he's going around and he's putting up the strapping, then he's going around and putting up the siding. And, you know, they keep driving by and they're like, what are you doing? <laughs> so uh if we if we can cut down on um you know at least one thing that hopefully is going to help us you know push high performance um in the marketplace a little bit easier because uh, you know if you as building scientists we never agree on on how to to do anything because there's like 20 different ways to do anything but for the most part we all pretty much agree out that like air tightness is kind of the the cheapest and easiest way to to try to get the most out of what we're doing at, at least in this climate i don't know if that's the case in all climates because i certainly don't be um, profess to be any kind of expert in climates outside of cold yeah but as, as long as your vapor is controlled i don't think there's any I, i've never heard any downsides to building airtight as long as you have mechanical ventilation of some sort yes because houses don't have to breathe getting at that in there <laughs> right Yes, pe- pe- people need to breathe. Houses need to dry out. I, I, I suppose if you're in if you're in Hawaii, you probably don't need to worry as much about air tightness. But yeah, or like San Diego, where it's like the same temperature inside and outside, like all the time. You know, there's probably not a whole bunch right. of vapor diffusion because everything's just always the same temperature. So. You know, it doesn't right. boring. Just boring. <laughs> yeah. Who wants to do that? Let me go do something else. So, but yeah, in, in, in areas where the, the Delta T can be pretty significant between your 68 or 70 degree interior temperature and your negative 15, uh, it can be, it can be something that you really need to consider. Well, how, um, um, how about just, just a quick listing of our, of our favorite WRBs or the ones we know about my, uh, go-to is Proclima Solitex Mento, um, which has a few, few, few options, or their self-adhered version is called Adhero. Um, Siga Mayvest is, is a good one. And then, uh, so those are, the, those are the ones I usually use. I have used Henry Blue Skin on one project. Um, I use Zip a lot. Um, I tend not to like it if it's right out there underneath, directly underneath the cladding, but if it's protected back under a uh, exterior insulation. I'm, I'm comfortable with it uh, as, long as, as long as it's installed well. Um, a couple other, um, uh, so yeah, Benjamin Obdike has this has this new version of HydroGap. They also have a couple of WRBs on their own um, uh, that are similar to Type R. And then um, a new company to the US is called Rotoblast. I think you'll be, you'll be hearing more about that soon. They, they're a European, um, uh, basically timber frame component manufacturer and they have a whole bunch of cool products they're 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 starting to release here um and then one one more is um 
Delta or Delta Dorkin. They keep changing their name, but it's, uh, um, they're, uh, they're another, more in the commercial world, but we can get Delta membranes and they're, they're very tough, heavy duty commercial grade. I agree. I agree with your list. Um, those are all ones that we've used. I'm kind of interested to see more about this Rotoblast to, you know, have, don't know anything about them. So always kind of interesting to see new products coming on the market and what they're doing. Although they're really not new products, they're just new to us. So yeah, yeah, it's a, um, they have really nice, uh, really nice catalogs. Like they, 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 they put a bunch of effort into print uh, catalogs, which makes me a little concerned that if that that's not really how we do things <laughs> nowadays, I'm not sure. Hopefully they're not behind the times, but no, they have, um, uh, they have uh, some really nice screws. So essentially screws that would compete with other, like like GRK screws, but better, or like Timberlink screws, but better. Um, and then they have membranes and some other connectors. Some of that could be just how, how they work in their area in Europe too. And so it might not be behind the times for what they're doing over there, that's, but it could be true. different for what we're doing over here. I mean, I know a lot for us up here with high performances, like, no, I don't want you to give me a book. I want you to send me the link to what I need to know on your website that has all <laughs> your information on it. Because the last thing I'm going to do is, is go to my bookshelf and pull out the book uh, and look in the book. I'm going to look online and research and see what other people liked about it and can't get that information from the nice shiny book. Although probably get somebody's attention. Yeah, no, I think that was great on WRBs. Do you have any WRB, you don't know what you don't know horror stories? Mm. Um, well, I think um, one, one that seems to come up regularly. In fact, it just came up on uh um, on one of the architect forums I'm on basically back and forth with an architect who really should know better. She was saying that uh, uh, this client was insisting on a, on a, on an exterior vapor barrier. I commented, do you mean WRB or are you talking about an air barrier on the interior? And she's basically, she's confusing WRBs and vapor barriers and air barriers. Just they're all separate things. And most, I mean, although we, we talk about the four, the four critical layers, most, the vast majority of architects, I think, don't understand the fine points. Most builders don't understand the fine points of which one is which and when they're used and where they belong in the wall assembly. And it's hard because there's not one right answer. There's, there's a lot of different answers, but they all have different roles that they have to play. There's a lot of truth to that and um, the different control layers. And um, I don't remember if we've talked about it before on the podcast, but uh, part of the reason why we as the designers like to be involved in, in the construction process is um, things aren't apples to apples. So if I spec out a wall system, that's a double wall system with cellulose insulation and I don't, don't always use an interior air barrier skin, um, you know, we use our sheetrock and, and tape it and, and do that because our exterior layer is our, our air barrier. And then you decide to change that insulation to, you know, Roxel. Well, that has different properties. And so um, even though the Roxel says R30 on it and your Denspec cellulose is saying R30 on it, they're not apples to apples comparison because they, they work in different ways. And so um, the same with vapor barrier. Um, a lot of codes say you have to have an interior vapor barrier. And in a high performance world, that might not be the way that you want to control the moisture in your wall system. So uh, having a, an interior vapor barrier may not be the right direction to go, but um, the same with builders and architects, maybe not 
knowing uh, what they have going on is I think our code officials don't necessarily know either what they're asking for. And they're like, well, it says in here, you have to have a vapor barrier. And it's kind of like, well, it's not that simple. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and the, the, the IRC code book does give us some, some options, but you kind of have to, you have to really understand there's two different places to look. There's one that meets the energy code, but a different one that's for vapor control. And even that's a little bit on the risky end of things. So it's just, there's a lot of moving, moving parts. And it's, it's, it's hard to stay up on all these different things. And they change every three years, you know, as the code improves. Yeah. Well, it's hard for builders. It's hard for architects. It's hard for code enforcement officers to stay up on it. Maybe we should do a, we should do a whole podcast on on some of the things that are are in code, you know, to to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, because the other thing that we've talked about on here is that um, some things that are built today uh, that in theory meet code uh, don't actually meet code when you when you think about the overall uh, system of what they're trying to do. Like, you know, if you if you put R30 fiberglass in the wall and you don't have an air barrier, well, it's not really R30. So, um, you know, fiberglass works really well in, in a completely enclosed environment. So technically, does it meet code because it's R30 and that's what it says on the bat? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is that a fair comparison mm-hmm. to, you know, to what other people are doing? So um, we could probably do like a whole year's worth of podcast on codes. Um, yeah. That's boring. <laughs> well, I, I'd enjoy it, but I don't know if everybody would. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I say that it's boring. It's not really actually boring if you're trying to figure out how the parts and pieces and the systems go together. But if you, you know, if you imagine doing code research, that's just, a, yeah. you know, it's, it's quite a lot of, uh, well, it might say this, but it could say that. <laughs> um, so every code officer has kind of a different interpretation of what that code says. Yes, and, they, and there's a lot in there and a lot to know. And I, I don't, I've, n- I've never met a code officer who knows everything in the code inside and out. Just, they always have to go reference it and think about it or reference the, the uh, commentary to, to, under- to try to understand what the intent of the language was in the first place. So the, the- right, and here's my plug on Efficiency Main, what I think Efficiency Main should be helping to do, which is that I love um, our friend Bob from Vermont often says how Vermont has this great resource where um, they have uh, energy advisors that can kind of help out with that. Is like maybe our code officers don't need to be the ones that are also enforcing the energy code. Um, but as you can see, we have towns who already share a code officer. So getting <laughs> you know another person involved, but it would be great if Efficiency Main said, hey, in order to meet some of these standards we're going to try to help people through these by by you know providing resources for energy improvements and um, I know when I was doing a lot more energy consulting and a lot less architecture uh, it it would have been great uh, when there was a lot of money coming into the state to pay for that those people were really busy you know and they made a, a I mean, I'd like to think they made a dent, but you know, they, they were busy and they did a lot of that and they helped a lot of people through. And I know um, I met a lot of builders over the time that were like, man, I wish I would have known some of these things and I've been building for you know a while. And I, you know, we drilled holes in the top plate because we thought our wall systems needed to breathe. And I'm like, you did what? <laughs> um, you know, so so there was kind of an interesting learning piece, but like it would be great, and there there would be people out there in the field who who could just do energy consulting for um, 
you know, for the state of Maine and really improve the performance of, you know, both the existing housing stock that we have, but um, I'd love to see uh, that we are improving the new construction. Like if we're building new construction, we should just be building it better. Yeah, so. no, for sure. No, I mean, I mean, the, yeah, the, the last, I think, I think, yeah, yeah, the last three code enforcement officers, code officials I've met with to review projects. We've done the, you know, 20 to 30 minutes review of my project to make sure things are compliant and all that. Uh, and then they've kept me for another half hour or to, to, to an hour to, uh, to grill me on. So what's this about polyisos derated in cold weather? What's this about the ratios of interior? Like they, there's a lot in that energy section or between energy and building durability. Like when it's not spelled out, there's a lot of, uh, there seems to be a real gap in the, uh, education that they're getting or at least if they are getting it, it's not sticking i mean it, it is complicated stuff so yeah um but the, 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 there's definitely a need for code official education and then because the, they're also often the ones educating the builders like a lot of builders are not going to the the, the educational events you and i go to they're basically the code officer is their their boss yeah tool, so yeah, which I think is, you know, another reason to have, um, you know, to have energy professionals available to to builders is, you know, I'm a hands-on person. And so I learn a lot better if I can be there and learn and, and do. And if you're kind of there helping them, you know, instead of coming after the fact and doing a blower door test that you then failed and you have to try to figure out how you can, you know, improve the air barrier somewhere in a finished house. Like if, if it was part of the process where you showed up one or two times and you're like, you know, some things, um, you know, I'd never say that a visual inspection is ever a replacement for blower door testing, but sometimes when you're walking through a structure, you're kind of like, well, that's going to be a problem. And I would address that now. And, you know, then you'll definitely have better luck, you know, moving forward. So, um, good points. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I love the idea of homeowners getting rebates for certain things through efficiency main. That's really great. But I think that it could be huge if efficiency main also had rebates to help energy professionals provide support to um, the people on the ground. And, you know, as, as you know, with the, this podcast and stuff, we're trying to reach other architects who, who maybe don't know, but are trying to get to this point, they should know. Um, there's been a, a lot of backlash, and we've talked about this before. We could probably do a whole podcast on, um, you know, what the architect should know, what the builder should know, what the homeowner should know. Um, but there's been, you know, some backlash on uh, back in the day when you didn't worry about energy so much. You, maybe the architect's drawings were were really detailed on how to construct it. Um, but we've gotten to the point where it's like. The builder figures it out in the field or the builder says, well, the architect didn't put it on the drawings and then now nobody's responsible for it. So <laughs> let's, let's, let's try to get the education so that it's just easy for people to be like, oh yeah, we need to have this here. Or we need to, um, someone actually made a really interesting uh, point and I don't, pardon me because I don't remember who you know we get all these events and we do all these things and we're part of all these forums that I don't always remember who says what to me um but it, like wouldn't it be great if you could just give a plan set to to one of these 475 or performance building supply or whatever and say hey I need this energy package uh you know maybe it's part of the good house guild too it's like here's this plan set plus here's all of the things that you're going to need as part of this package 
for your air sealing package. So that would be kind of kind of fun. And your materials list is, you know, beyond just some some takeoffs for siding or, or wood, but it's like, oh, here here are all of the different parts and pieces. Uh, maybe uh, Good House Guild is is more. Uh, wouldn't it be awesome if it was like the old Sears Robux kit houses? You know, where they just sent you twelve thousand pieces of things and you assembled it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, every piece is there for a reason. It's more or less pre-cut or at least sized properly, so it should be what you need. You don't have to go track down, you know, asking questions on Green Building Advisor and emailing right. you and emailing me and getting five different answers and trying to choose what the one right thing is when there are five different ways that are all right. So they can just get one package. This is a system that will do what you need. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we love Green Building Advisor because we all get on there and we argue with each other, but that's a really confusing, uh, it's a really confusing site for uh, people who are just trying to jump into it, whether you're a builder, architect, or a homeowner, and you go in there and you read that and we're all disagreeing on everything. Yeah. But they, they uh, sneak preview, they are working on something to help navigate that problem, but it, it won't solve everything, but it will sort of help you under like sort of highlight posts that, 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 that are better than others. <laughs> well, and I think that part of the reason that it's confusing too is that, um, you know, a lot of the people who comment on that have a lot of building science knowledge. And so when they're commenting, they're maybe not leaving all of the details because they're assuming that the other person that they're talking to has the rest of the details on why that would be different. And so sometimes when you leave things out, it doesn't make sense. It just makes it look like you're, you're arguing the same point where sometimes you're not necessarily arguing the same point. You're saying, well, if you did this, you could do that, but that doesn't always come across. So. Right. Well, it's also, it's somebody in Maine arguing with somebody in Texas, arguing with somebody in Alaska. Like we all have different conditions we're dealing with. And so my experience could be different from somebody else's. Yeah, exactly. And that's another thing that, um, you know, has been really interesting with the advent of the Good House Guild and um, having semi-customizable high-performance plans is um, I design semi-customizable high-performance plans for zone six. They're not going to be appropriate for, you know, zones one through I mean, maybe you could get away within five, but zones one through four, I mean, your, your air barrier, your vapor barrier, your insulation content, like they could all be really, really different. You know, if you have a really humid environment and your primary cooling climate, you're not a heating climate. I mean, that's all totally different. And so it makes a big difference how you, how you do it and how you treat the structure. And so, um, it's a little frustrating that some of the other, um, house plan, uh, sites you know where you could go and and get a, a get a plan that's already put together um don't really push the fact that you then need to both have it reviewed structurally for for your area um but also for performance for your area too because what works on the west coast um you know may not stand up to the snow load that we have here or right. you know again might not have the the right um vapor barriers or insulation content or um, a lot of those plans have existed for many, many years and code has changed over the years. And so, you know, things that you used to be able to do, maybe you can't do now um, or things that you can do now you didn't used to be able to do. Um, and so I think that there's a little bit of a disservice to the homeowner market 
uh, and then contractor market is that you, you kind of can't just take a plan and say, well, this will work anywhere. Anyway, that's totally off topics for WRBs. <laughs> so, it's all related though. It's all related. It, well, it is all related because again, house is a system. So, you yeah. know, just because we talked about WRBs today doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that isn't just one singular component. Um, and part of the reason why you can't say, well, which WRB do I need to buy when I walk into the lumber store? Because mm-hmm. it depends. <laughs> It depends. <laughs> it depends. So anyway, thanks for being on the podcast today. Always a pleasure. Love talking building science with you. Thanks um, for having what's, me. what's our next topic for BS and beer? Um, this uh, in December, we have uh, Lee Burnett from um, Maine Woodworks or lo- lo- local woodworks um, uh, coming. He uh, sort of promotes uh, sustainable timber harvesting and, and uh, associated industries in Maine. So essentially, um, something along the lines of how to buy and use local wood. And I think we may expand it a little bit just to be more like, how do we buy more locally uh, with all of our products? Like why, why are we like Maine's most heavily the on a percentage basis, Maine is the most heavily forested state in the country. Why are we shipping in, you know, clapboards from the West coast and deck boards from South America and, something else from Australia. Like we have all the wood we need right here and, and other materials as well. Yeah. Um, I love the idea of talking about local wood too, because that's a low carbon material. And so as we're trying to push towards more low carbon materials, not only is it local, so you're not paying to ship it somewhere with, you know, transportation and how much fossil fuels transportation uses, but that, you know, wood itself is a, is a much lower carbon material than and other things. And so we're lucky to be in the state of Maine. Um, and I think um, if there are other building science professionals listening to the podcast this week, I think performance building supply is going to talk about PGH and how that is relative to renovations. Um, I think is the, is the next, next one for that. So. Yes. Yeah, so I think they're December 11th and then BS and beer is December 20th. That's on a Thursday. Not now for the rest of the year, they're closed on Wednesdays. Ah, very so nice. Just just before Christmas, we can get together for a cr- cup of Christmas cheer and uh, talk about local wood. That sounds perfect. So again, thanks for being on the podcast and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.